started. Uh, more copies are coming. Nancy's going to bring them out, I think. Dustin, if you want to go ahead and put that first slide up there. All righty. Hopefully, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do Revelation 10 and also Revelation 11. Revelation 10 is a pretty straightforward one. It's a shorter chapter. Revelation 11 has got a lot more information. So we'll kind of see here what's going to be going on with that. So, like I said, more sheets are going to be coming there. So Revelation 10 and also Revelation 11. All righty. Let's go ahead and have a quick word of prayer and we'll get started. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you now to pray as always, Lord, you would teach, we would listen, just let your spirit guide and direct into all truth. And Lord, just pray from just the nursery up into the sanctuary here that your love is being shown and your word is being taught. And we just pray your spirit to do that in your name. Amen. All righty. Now, we have something that in biblical terms is called a little bit of a parenthesis. It's a little bit of a break. And it's a little bit of a break here from the trumpet judgments. Last week we finished the sixth trumpet judgment. If you look in chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and even 15, it's a little bit of a break. This is what I call catch-up time in the book of Revelation. You can look here at this uh, um, timeline that we've kind of put up here a lot over the last few weeks. What we're going to focus on tonight, if you look on the left side, is the temple being rebuilt and the two witnesses. That's what we're going to talk about here tonight. We've already covered uh, the 144,000. We've already covered them a few weeks ago. We've briefly hit the rise of the Antichrist. We'll get to him a little bit more here, especially as we get to chapter 13 and chapter 12. Now, we haven't really got to the abomination of desolation yet. That's coming up here in a couple chapters. Now, you've got to remember here in this timeline of prophecy, three and a half years, 1260 days, 42 months. Tribulation is a seven-year period divided into two three-and-a-half-year segments. We have to remember in biblical prophecy, a year is 360 days, not 365 days. That's why you have the days come up there a little bit different. So the whole seven-year period is the tribulation divided into two three-and-a-half-year sections. Most of what we've been dealing with here has been in the first three and a half years. You can make the case, and I'll make the case, that the trumpet judgments seem to happen in the second half. But mostly what we've been dealing with here is the first half, and that's what we're going to hit here tonight a little bit more, is the two witnesses and also the temple being rebuilt. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Uh, chapter 10 of Revelation. It says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders utter, and do not write them. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should no be no delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Let's stop there for a little bit. Let's figure out who this angel was first. You can see in your sheet, we kind of made a little brief description here of what's going on. First off, he's coming in the cloud. That obviously clouds makes you think of heaven. Rainbow. Rainbow is a symbol that God has given to show his faithfulness, to show his love. Face like the sun refers to glory and majesty. Pillars of fire. Anytime you see fire in the Bible, always think of judgment. And feet on land and sea, you see power over all creation. And then voice of a lion, you see that being power. Now here's the problem which you have in the book of Revelation. People sometimes will take these seven little verses and they will debate hour after hour after hour who the angel is. Now, from my personal opinion, 
I think when I look at the angel, I think of the description, I think it's a pretty good reference to probably Jesus. That's my personal opinion. He's referred as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Angel just literally means messenger. Christ obviously was a messenger. If you look at the description here, cloud, heavenly. Jesus said, I'm going to return in the clouds. Rainbow, obviously God's faithfulness. Face like sun, pillars like fire. We know Jesus is the judge. Feet on land and sea. We know Jesus was creation. He was creator of creation. Voice of a lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I think it's a neat reference to Christ. Now, some people may say, no, I don't see that. That's fine. We don't have to debate it. Let's just move on. I think it's a neat reference to Christ. When you look at all the symbolism here and all the picture of it, I think it's a neat reference to what Christ has. And I think this book that he has, that we're going to get to in a little bit, I think this book may even be a reference to what we talked about earlier, about that uh, scroll in Revelation chapter 5, the title deed to the earth. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But what you have here is you also have him mentioning these seven thunders that were uttered, the seven thunders that were uttered. And, and John's getting ready to write this, but it says, seal this up, verse 4. It's not time for it yet, he says. I always found that kind of fascinating here, that he wasn't supposed to share those yet. Seal up the things which the seven thunders utter and do not write them. Not everything has been revealed. Now, I have to share this with you real quick, because a few years ago we had a guy that... Uh, Hopped out to church here regularly, did not attend, but just came out to church when I was out here working in the office or something. And he wanted to come out to the church and he wanted to share all the time. He said he had something that he always wanted to share, and it was just like warning lights anytime this guy showed up. This is just not of God, and I can go into a lot of details why this is not of God. So, long story short, he told me that the seven thunders were revealed to him. He knew what they were. And he was starting a Bible study over at the town that he lived, and each week he was going to reveal what each one of the thunders were. And that's what he was going to do. So I put up with it for a little bit, and I finally had enough. And this one of the few times in life, maybe the only time I ever did, I looked him in the eye and I said, I think you're a false prophet. And uh, please don't come back. And he hasn't come back yet. So, but if he does come back, maybe he still knows what they are. I don't know. But i always a little leery when somebody likes to either add to the scriptures or verse 4. They know something that no one else ever knows. The seven thunders are sealed. So you know what that means? I don't know what they are, and I'm not even going to take a guess at what they are. And we're not going to waste time on that. So let's just move on. So speaking of who this angel could be, I think it's a picture of Christ. I think it's a picture of him getting ready to come back in judgment. Because look at the book here, verse 8. It says, Then the voice which I heard from the heavens spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This is the description of bittersweet. I mean, this is what it is. And the reason it's bittersweet, because if this little book, I've heard many people have many different ideas of what the little book is. If the little book is the scroll from Revelation 5, which shows the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, it shows Christ retaking the earth. Well, it's bittersweet. Why? Because when you first taste it, you're excited. Jesus is returning. Christ is coming back. This is what we've been praying for. This is what we've been hoping for. But after you digest it for a little bit, it becomes bitter. Why? Because i got a lot of unsaved friends and loved ones. And even though Christ returns and I get to go home to glory, my unsaved friends and loved ones are left to go through the tribulation. What a horrible thing. It's a bittersweet thing. See, this is the one thing about Christianity which I hate it when someone presents God this way. Anytime they present God as this angry person that lives upstairs that just gets his kicks off seeing people being judged and being sent to hell. 
That is no way whatsoever. Ezekiel makes it very clear. Ezekiel writes that God said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No, not one. None. And any time I see Christians or supposed Christians presenting God as just being thrilled and happy with judgment and seeing people be sent to hell and cast to hell, and they're really misunderstanding who God is. It's a bittersweet thing to think about judgment. It's sweet because it's nice to see justice done. It's nice to see righteousness done. It's nice to see wrongs be made right. It's bitter because someone is dying and going to hell. We throw that phrase out a lot, don't we? You hear it in movies and TVs, that phrase of go to hell. If you really stop and think about what that is, I don't care how much you hate your worst enemy, you do not want them to go to hell. You want them to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of Christ. You know why? Because God wants them to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of Christ. So it's a bittersweet thing, and that's why I think John is told here at the end of verse 11, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Basically, I almost take this to say, John, you're only about halfway through, man. This is tough. Yeah, we've done the seal judgments. Yeah, we've done most of the trumpet judgments. But you know what? You still got the bowl judgments coming up. And how many times have we sat out here on Wednesday? If you thought the seal judgments were bad, the trumpet judgments are worse than the seal judgments. And the bowl judgments make the trumpet and seal judgments look like a walk in the park. It gets a lot worse. And so it's a bitter, sweet thing. We're excited about the return of Christ, but at the same time it brings sadness because you have unsaved loved ones, I have unsaved loved ones, and judgment is coming. So you see here in Revelation 10 a little bit of a parenthesis that gives us a little bit of a heavenly scene of what's going on and what's going also with John. A bittersweet moment of judgment. I think this reveals a lot of God's heart. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember that verse. No pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments here about Revelation 10 before we move on and we change hats a little bit in Revelation 11? Yeah, John. Where he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. There's still more to come. John's not done yet. There's still more to come. That's, I think it's just that. Prophesy just means speak forth for God, so you still have things you've got to talk about, John. Anybody else have anything they want to say before we move on? All right, now Revelation 11 changes scenes just a little bit here. We're just going to read the first couple of verses. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, a couple things about this. Now we're back into a little bit of our time frame here. The two witnesses are going to be introduced. Now, the two witnesses are going to prophesy and be a witness for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. We'll get to that in a little bit. But before we get to that, we're introduced to the temple. Now, very simply put, there is no temple right now. So if that means there's going to be a temple, verse 2, that means the temple has to be rebuilt. Dustin, can you go to the next slide here real quick? Now, just a quick review. The first thing that you had back during Moses in the time of Exodus was the tabernacle. After the tabernacle, next slide, please. You had Solomon's temple. This is the temple that David started collecting the materials for, Solomon built. This is the one that you think of when you think of uh, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, the Chronicles, etc. This temple was destroyed by Babylon eventually. Next slide, please. temple was then rebuilt. That's what the book of Zechariah is about here, is the temple being rebuilt. Well, this temple became Herod's temple. You can see the original temple in there, and Herod, like any great ruler, wanted to build something more bigger and more spectacular, so he made the temple even bigger and made it huge. And this would have been the temple that was been around during the time of Christ. Well, this temple got destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, which takes us to the next slide, as there's another temple coming, and this is the Millennial Temple. This is the temple that will be built during the thousand-year reign of Christ out of the book of Ezekiel. This temple is yet to come. So during the millennial reign of Christ, there's going to be another temple. 
There's going to be sacrifices offered around this temple, and this is all out of the book of Ezekiel, and we'll get to the millennial reign around Revelation chapter 20. You and I will experience this temple. Now, hopefully you and I experience this temple as serving with the Lord, because what happens is when the rapture happens, we get taken out, and part of the blessing we have of being raptured out is when Christ returns and sets up his millennial reign, we get to serve with him, rule alongside with him. So this is the temple that we will experience during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, the temple they're talking about here in Revelation 11 is not this temple. There is an ongoing emphasis right now to rebuild the temple over in Israel. That's one of the main things that's going on here. Can you go to the next slide, please, Dustin? They're actually going, as we speak, there's a group called the Temple Institute, and I printed this off because I just wanted to read this to you. And it's the Temple Institute, founded in 1987, nonprofit organization, etc., etc. Here it is. Their goal is to build the Holy Temple of God on Mount Moriah, Moriah in, Jer in Jerusalem. Our short-term goal is to rekindle the flame of the Holy Temple in the hearts of mankind through education. Our long-term goal, now listen to this, is to do all in our limited power to bring about the building of the Holy Temple in our time. The major focus of the Institute is its efforts towards the beginning of the actual rebuilding of the Holy Temple. Towards this end, the Institute has begun to restore and construct the sacred vessels for the service of the Holy Temple, the vessels which God commanded. And that's exactly what you see here. They have actually started making the priestly garments the way they're supposed to be done. Next slide, please. You have the table, the showbread, that is actually done. They have everything made except the one thing. What's the one thing they're missing? Ark of the Covenant. And everybody knows where the Ark of the Covenant is, right? Where is it at? Smithsonian. Remember? Raiders of the Lost Ark, they found it. It's at the back of the Smithsonian. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. You guys will use that joke. I know you will. Now, the thing is, they have everything done, literally, except the Ark of the, uh, the Covenant. The, the next big thing, if you know anything about Old Testament, is they have something called the Ashes of the Red Heifer. And the Ashes of the Red Heifer are extremely important when it comes to the Old Testament there. It's out of the book of Numbers. They have to have a pure red heifer. A pure, I mean, a no spot or blemish of anything. It has to be completely red. And once these red heifers are born, they have to sit there and watch them for a long time to make sure that no spots pop up. These ashes of red heifer are vital when it comes to some Old Testament stuff. They're still trying to get the ashes of the red heifer around. But this is where it gets even more interesting. Because when I first got saved 18 years ago, they started talking about the temple. And every time I heard about the temple, I thought, okay, yeah, sure, they're rebuilding the temple. They're really trying to do this stuff. I mean, this is an article right here that's off of Israel's main news service. I mean, this would be the equivalent to NBC, ABC, or CBS. And here's real quick. It says, as the Jewish people continue their national return to their ancestral homeland, tailors at the Temple Institute in Jerusalem's old city, go back one slide if you will, please, Dustin, began taking measurements of the Kohenim, the priestly tribe designated to run the temple services earlier this month, and the anticipation of an even bigger event the dedication of what they call the Third Temple. Yehuda Glick, director of the Temple Institute, presider of the first ever fitting of the Kohenim for their priestly garments. They've actually started to fit guys for the temple service. They've actually started taking these outfits now, and they're tailoring them to people to get ready to do this. They're pretty confident that they can do this. Now, the problem with this is, jump ahead a slide again, Dustin, and one more. The problem is this. If anybody knows Israel... That bottom is the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. It was part of the original. It was part of Solomon's Temple there. Well, on the back, you got the mound there, the Muslims. This is the problem that we have: is to rebuild this temple. You have the two main religions that really don't like to get along with each other, literally hundreds of yards from each other. So, for Israel to come in and build a temple off this uh, temple wall right there, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, well, they can't do that. 
Well, the Muslims are right over there. They got their, uh, the, the mount there right over something called the foundation rock where supposedly Muhammad went up to heaven, which is also one of the rocks that were supposed to be part of the original temple. You can see why now this isn't working. Well, this is how it all starts to come together. And we don't know how, and we don't know why, we don't know what, we don't know yet, but whoever the Antichrist is, one of the things he does is he solves this problem, is that he gets these two groups to be okay with this temple being rebuilt smack dab here where they don't get along and the two main Old Testament religions, if you will, in some ways battle this type of thing out. Now, when I say Old Testament, some of you may be saying, hey, now wait a second here. Muslims didn't come around until much later. I understand. I'm talking about the seed of Ishmael and also the seed there, obviously, of the Jews coming together. He figures out how to do this somehow, and that's part of what he does. So when you see this in Revelation 11 where it talks about the temple, don't skip over those verses. That's a big deal. People always talk about, well, why don't we see things being fulfilled right now in front of our eyes? If you just go online and read some of these articles, you're seeing prophecy being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. They're making garments for the priest. They're making the vessels for the temple. They're doing it right now. And the temple is going to be rebuilt. Now, this temple that's going to be rebuilt, you can see here in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, for 42 months, for half the tribulation, it's given over to the Gentiles. Now, what exactly does that mean? There's two trains of thought on this. Two trains of thought. Dustin, can you go all the way back to the timeline, please? Two trains of thought on this. The first train of thought is that during the second half of the tribulation, which we haven't got to yet, that's why that part's blank there, that that's when the Antichrist is in his full power. And so therefore he has the temple under his control because he goes in in the middle and does the abomination of desolation. And so therefore the second half of the tribulation is underfoot of the Gentiles. The other idea is that during the first half of the tribulation that the temple is up and running and doing things and that it's under his power. And during the second half no one really cares because that's when the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments are happening. And it really doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter which way you look at it. The point is the Antichrist is going to have his little power trip for about three and a half years, rise of the Antichrist there. He then comes in and does the abomination of desolation, which means that he goes into the actual rebuilt temple, sets himself up as God, sets an altar up there for himself, and that's where the Jews figure out, we were wrong. This guy's not our Messiah, and that's what happens in Revelation chapter 12, is that the Jews then flee into the wilderness for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So my personal opinion is I think that, that 42 months refers to the first half of the tribulation when the Antichrist is in power there when things are happening. So that's what it means there about the temple being rebuilt and the background of that. So does anybody have any quick questions here about the temple being rebuilt? Yeah, Ryan. Ryan. Well, well a couple things that happened with that is actually during the break in the period where the uh, Jews were scattered all around when the Syrians came and also when the Babylonians came and the Jews were scattered and they didn't have their temple, that's where the rise of synagogues happened. They basically started saying, hey, listen, we don't have a temple, we can't go here, so we're going to set up our own little, for lack of a better word, churches. So that's how synagogues happen. To answer your question, well, what about the Orthodox that say we still want to sacrifice? Well, that's what this Temple Institute is trying to do, is they still believe the sacrificial system is vital and is important, and they're trying to figure this out, and they're trying to do this now. I would say, from my perspective of studying them out, they would say that uh, that's why they want to do it, is to make themselves right with God, but yet God understands that they can't have this system set up right now because they have to make sure all their I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So there still is a segment of the Jewish population that wants sacrifices, they want a temple, they want to go back to the Old Testament. They do, that's the Orthodox, that's what they want. Megan. Yes, there's still going to be sacrifices in the Millennial Temple. Now, that bothers people sometimes because they say, well, wait a second here. Why would we do sacrifices if Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice? The best way to describe why we would do sacrifices in the Millennial Reign is the same reason why we do communion today. 
Communion does not save us. Communion does not do anything to make us more righteous with God. Communion is a way for us to look back. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Sacrifices during the millennial reign seem to have that same mindset. The reason sacrifices were happening in the millennial reign is not a sacrifice to earn righteousness or salvation. It's a sacrifice of remembrance of what Christ did on the cross there. So that's the main reason for them. It's a way of remembering. So if you check it out in Ezekiel, that's what's going to actually happen there. Similar to our communion, a way to look back and remember what Jesus did. Anybody else have anything here about the temple being rebuilt before we move on? Okay. So now that we got this understood, let's see what the two witnesses do. Verse 3 of Revelation 11, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, half a year, excuse me, half of the tribulation, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So these are the two witnesses that God raises up, and you can kind of see what's going on here. They, they serve during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. This idea of being lampstands, that's a reference to Zechariah, lampstands being lights and witnesses for the Lord, and, and they represent God's judgment. You try to harm them, you get toasted by fire. They're also going to do other plagues and stuff. Verse 6, water to blood, strike the earth with plagues. They're going to do that. This is almost like Old Testament happening in the New Testament. And this is what's going to happen here. Now, once again, this is a time where people stop and say, well, well who are the two witnesses? And I've heard people debate this for a very, very long time, that who are the two witnesses? And there are so many different trains on thought on this. It could be just two people that God raises up. It could just be two people in the tribulation period that God raises up. They could be, some people say, well, I think it's Elijah. You know, calling fire down from heaven, Elijah, that sounds like an Elijah thing. That's what he did. And they say, well, Elijah never died. He was taken up by chariot to heaven. And that's a very valid point. Some people say, well, I think it could also be Elijah and Moses because you're talking about water to blood and plagues. Well, I think it could be Moses and Elijah. I've heard people say, well, maybe it's Enoch because Enoch was also never, never died. There's a lot of different ways to look at it. I'm going to express my opinion, and then you can disagree with me later. Just don't disagree with me to my face. I think, I think it's probably going to be Elijah and Moses. And some people say, oh, Moses died. So did Lazarus, you know? And I think it could be Moses, and this is why. Moses, if you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, who are the two people on the Mount with Jesus? Elijah and Moses. Isn't it interesting? At the end of the book of, um, let me get my math right here, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says that they hid the body of Moses, that they don't know where he was buried. And we know in the book of Jude that Satan wanted the body of Moses for some reason, and Michael the archangel had to fight him off for that. So there's something important with Moses that's still coming up we don't know. Moses never got to finish his job. You remember that? Moses' job was to take the people into the promised land. Because of Moses' sin, Moses never gets the job completed start. I think it could be Elijah and Moses. It is not a big deal, and I'm not making a theological point at it. It's just my perspective and my point of view there on that. It's an opinion. Take it or leave it. But you see the, these two people. First half of the tribulation. So whenever you think of the tribulation, you think, okay, well, this isn't fair. This is just judgment and death. No, it's not. You've got the 144,000 super Jews out there being a light and a witness. You've got the two witnesses that are going to have the greatest ministry the world has ever seen. And this is what's going to be going on. Verse 7, it says, When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. This is important. When do they die? When they finish their testimony. They're not defeated. They're not defeated. This is just like Christ on the cross. It's not like Satan got the upper hand. Jesus said it is finished Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus said it's over. When they have finished their testimony, they're done. 
Now, I like that. That shows that they're in God's hand and God's plan. Verse 8, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. That's obviously uh, Jerusalem. Then these, those from those peoples, tribes and tongues and nations, will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in graves. Now, how will they see it? Flip on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, anything you want. Those images are out there. I mean, I distinctly remember back in 93 when everything happened in Somalia and, we, and there was a couple of American servicemen that got killed in Mogadishu. They drug the bodies throughout the street. And those images were broadcast all over. Same thing happens still today. And so these bodies are going to be killed, left, not buried. And I think this is going to be the bottom line ticker on every news thing that's going on. I think this is going to be number one in the 6 o'clock news. Why? Because look at verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, send gifts to one another, because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The world's going to be thrilled they're dead. I mean, think about this. These two guys are coming to their first half of the tribulation. Anytime someone tries to tell them to shut up, they get toasted. They're turning water to blood. They're doing plagues and droughts and whatever type of stuff. They're not going to be liked. The Antichrist is going to try to rise in power. Don't you think he's going to try to shut these people up? And every time someone tries to stop them, they're untouchable. This is amazing. These two guys are going to be proclaiming the gospel day in and day out. I don't know what they're going to look like. I have this envision of men with staffs and robes and beards down to their belly button, and they're just constantly talking and proclaiming about Jesus and about him returning and everything. And every time someone tries to touch them, it's not that they get pushed back, they get killed. This is going to be an amazing thing that's going on. So when these people are finally destroyed and killed, the world thinks they won. They have a little Christmas party about it. Verse 11, I love this. Now after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet in great fear fell on those who saw them. Can you imagine that? I am willing to bet these bodies will be, will be just decimated because of just what happens. And there's going to be this huge party going on. I almost envision this live video feed of just these bodies all the time, what people are doing to them. I mean, we, we just saw what happened there with Gaddafi's body. But this is going to be going on. All of a sudden, they're going to get up. Verse 12, And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell of Jerusalem, and the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Even in their death, they still are witnesses to the Lord and in the resurrection. Unbelievable stuff that's going to happen. Unbelievable stuff. When you stop and you think about that, these two witnesses for three and a half years are proclaiming the gospel. Their death is broadcast everywhere. For three and a half days, the world rejoices, celebrates, has a party. Whatever happens to their bodies, I can't even imagine. They're not allowed to be put in graves. I think that's a hint of what they're going to try to do. And then, and then they all of a sudden just get up. See, there's certain things in the Bible I've always wanted to see. I want to see this. I want to see these bodies just all of a sudden get up. And what happens? Everybody freaks out. Verse 13. Some of them freak out to fear. Some of them freak out to salvation. That's an amazing thing. So when you look at the book of Revelation, and the only thing you think is hellfire and brimstone, there's 144,000 spreading the gospel, there's the two witnesses spreading the gospel, there's going to be angels up in heaven spreading the gospel. God in judgment always reveals grace. He always does. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Always remember that. We're not going to be able to get to um, verses 14 through 19 tonight. We'll have to do that next week there. So little bit of change of pace yet for a couple weeks. Next week's a great chapter, Israel and the Antichrist. Chapter 13 is the rise of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Lots of good stuff coming up. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here? John? Mm -hmm. Who, Enoch? If it's not, right.
And you want this answered recorded now with everybody staring at me and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. What's the sound of one hand clapping too, right? You know, just those type of, type of questions there. Before we get to John's uh, rabbit trail, um, does anybody have a question about Revelation? I guess when it comes to Enoch, it's appointed for man to die once. Isn't there the assumption that when Enoch was taken into heaven, he was not taken into heaven in fleshly form? So flesh is of sin, so he has to obviously have some type of transformed body, just like we're going to get our glorified bodies we get to heaven. So I would assume in that process of going from body of flesh to body of transformed body, that if you want to use the word and term that he experienced some type of physical death, something had to happen for him to go from fleshly physical body to transform glorious. Thank you. Yep, that's why I get paid the big bucks. <laughs> Anybody else have anything here before it goes up? Yeah, Kenny. What's that? Uh-huh. Yes, I'll get you. I'll send you a picture of that. Yes, yes. Yeah, send it to you. I'll try to do it on your phone. I will try to send it to you, okay? Hey, Ryan, you did get the Raiders. I'm glad you're about the only one, I think. So Harrison Ford knows where the temple's at, where the ark's at. Yeah, he just didn't like it. Yeah, we got it. It just wasn't funny. Yeah, yeah. Megan. You know that? You know, I'm, I'm going to say this is this is a tough one, and once again, this is a really really tough question. Um, what what are we going to see and know while we're while we're up in heaven? And and I think part of the heavenly realm is when we die and we go up to heaven. I think part of the heavenly realm is that we don't know what goes on down here on earth. Because if I'm up in heaven, um, for me to enjoy the splendors and glory of heaven and to what Christ did on the cross, for me to look down here on earth and see unsaved loved ones and friends going through this, that's going to steal the joy of heaven. I don't mean that selfishly, but the Bible says there's no tears or anything up there in heaven. So to answer your question, I don't think we're going to be sitting on the edge of a cloud looking down saying, oh my goodness, look at this, of what's going on. You know, we, we, we sometimes hear at funerals, and I don't mean this to be rude or disrespectful to anybody, but you know, I know that he's up there in heaven looking down on me. I don't think he's up there in heaven looking down on anybody. And I don't mean to be rude when I say that. We've all lost loved ones. Part of the glory of heaven is we're enjoying the presence of Jesus and enjoying heaven. To know what's going on down here on earth and to be a part of that is not heavenly to me. So to answer your question is no. I don't think we're going to be knowing what's going on down here. And Luke 16 seems to reveal that too. If you want to study that out a little bit, the rich man and Lazarus. Rose. Yeah, yeah, we're already out of here. Yeah, yeah. Well, some of us will be gone. <laughs> not, not naming names. Um... But yeah, yeah, the rapture happens before this. The rapture. What's that? Yeah, yeah. Now I'm sorry. I just lost my job. Um, <laughs> anybody else have anything? Yeah, John. Yeah, I wanted to be here. I did say that. You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm planning on being one of the two. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's you and me, John. Yeah. yeah. So yes, Chris. That's right. Yeah, I want a mirror. Yeah, I'm gonna have somebody videotape it so when I get up there I can watch it. All righty, we should probably be done now because I have little people looking in through the window. So, <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you. Thank you for this time. And uh, Lord, as always, we just we just simply pray that the point of these messages is just also to remind us there's unsaved friends and loved ones. I pray in the name of Jesus, their hearts are open to you. Help us to be lights and witnesses in all we do and all we say, Lord. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week. God bless.